Hello, we are the Edgy Futurists. I'm Dan Fitzpatrick. I'm Ben Whitaker. And I'm Stephen Hope. The podcast by educators, for educators, the Edgy Futurist Podcast. Hello, and I'm Stephen Hope. The podcast by educators, for educators, the Edgy Futurist Podcast. I'm Ben Whitaker. And I'm Stephen Hope. He's on a loop. Stop it down. <laughs> Whoa! She's not live. Yeah. Have you ever seen Inception? Well, it was like we were going for an episode into another episode. So we're getting deeper there. Uh, yeah, welcome to this episode of Edgy Futurists. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, as you can see, just below me, we've got Alex Beard, who's going to be joining us. Uh, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash edgyfuturists, uh, if, you're, if you're listening on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, yeah, get get subscribed and have a look at our back catalogue as well. Yeah, we have well over 150 episodes, um, and you can go find us at edgyfuturists.com. Please subscribe um, using your podcast app. You can also subscribe on YouTube, uh, see some of the most recent broadcasts from Abdul Chohan and Summer Howarth, amongst others. Uh, don't forget, sign up for our free online Edufuturist Awards ceremony uh, on the 10th of July, where you can hear some great TEDx-style teachers, uh, sorry, talks uh, from Rob Hoban, Louise Jones, Drew Provey, David Price and Summer Howarth. Yeah, we made two more big announcements this week. Uh, first of all, we've got our merch stories now open. So if you want to get T-shirts, hoodies, caps, whatever else you want to do, if you've got another request, let us know. Uh, if you want to support us, obviously, we uh, we all do this as full-time educators. If you want to support what we do, we'd love you to get involved with that. And also, we've teamed up with C-Learning and Warwickshire College Group on the 24th of June to host their online FE and HT event, New, Next or Never Normal. Go to normal.edgyfuturist.com to sign up for that free event today. Yeah, so it's fantastic to have Alex Beard on with us today. Alex has worked in education for a decade after starting out as an English teacher in a London comprehensive. He completed his MA at the Institute of Education before joining Teach for All, a growing global network of organisations working to ensure that the next generation fulfil their potential. His book, Natural Born Learners, is a user's guide to transforming learning in the 21st century. The comedian Ruby Wax described it as a manual on how to successfully grow a kid's brain. And the General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, Jeff Barton, described it as one of the most optimistic, thought-provoking and ambitious educational books of the year. Uh, Alex is the creator of the recent BBC Radio 4 documentary series, The Learning Revolution. In this series, he investigates the future of learning and teaching and artificial intelligence and life, lifelong learning. You can follow Alex on Twitter at, Ed, uh, at Alex F. Beard. The podcast by educators, for educators, the Edufuturist Podcast. Alex, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. It's great to be here. I was excited to hear that you're going to be at Warwickshire College. My mum, Shona Beard, taught there, so give her a shout out if you get the chance. Yeah, we will, definitely. Yeah. Um, so we, we got you on because uh, a lot of what a lot of what, what you're about, a lot of your work uh, really resonates with with what, what we're doing at the moment and, uh, and a lot of our listeners as well who are really passionate about driving education forward so that it meets the needs of the of the next 100 years so that so that our students actually have those opportunities that are going to be around and and we find that like a bit, a bit of a mantra of ours is that we we all believed 
and, and the emphasis on believed that education was going to evolve to suit the needs of our students and, and the future world. But, mm-hmm. but we, we're kind of, we, we've realized that it's, it, it hasn't, it, or, or it's stagnated for a while to, to, the, to the point where we think that maybe evolution needs to, needs to step aside for a revolution. And that, and that kind of really sits with, with the title of your Radio 4 series as well about the, the, the learning revolution. Could you just tell us, because I know you've got a really good story there about how you, you've pretty much traveled the world and, 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 and researched this subject. Can you just tell us how you got into, into wanting this learning revolution to happen? Yes, so 12 years ago now, I started out life as a secondary school English teacher here in London, um, in Elephant and Castle on the old Kent Road. Um, And at the beginning, you know, I was a bad teacher. The kids I taught didn't know much about Shakespeare, but I knew even less about what good teaching was. Um, And we really struggled. I thought it was going to be like being... um, Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society. And, I, you know, the kids would be standing on tables and because that's what it had been like for me a little bit at school. I went to this lovely primary school in Warwickshire and then onto a secondary school that even had its own pack of beagles. That was how different my schooling experience was to the norm. Um, and then I ended up in Elephant and Castle with a group of amazing kids and teachers, but who... Um, were struggling in all sorts of ways. So the school would serve this big estate called the Haygate Estate, which Tony Blair visited in 1997 and said he was going to sort of bring an end to crime. It was known as a real hotspot. Half the kids were on free school meals, two-thirds spoke English as a second language, and all of them arrived at school years behind where we hope they might have been in their reading and writing through no fault of their own. And as a teacher, I became just really struck by it the fact that those kids were living in the future. They were using smartphones. They were spending all night playing Call of Duty and chatting to each other online. But the methods I was using as a teacher, I thought would have been familiar to Socrates back in the Agora two and a half thousand years ago. Um, And it just left me with this sort of big question. You know, I was preparing kids for GCSEs. um, And yet the summer they took those GCSEs, I read a thing that said by the time they would reach their 30th birthdays, it was likely that half the jobs they were planning on doing with those GCSEs of theirs were likely to have been automated by machines. The robot teachers, um, the robots were coming to take all of the jobs. And I thought, well, if that's the case, shouldn't we be doing a lot better? Um, And at the same time, I was reading about the advances we were making in neuroscience and in AI and in understanding the craft of teaching and asking the question of, what we should be learning. And so I thought it might be possible that we could do things differently um, and better perhaps. And so I had these big questions. What is it that we should be learning today? What should children be learning if they're gonna thrive in the 21st century? Um, How might we use our new technologies and understanding of the science to help kids um, to thrive? And what might the education system look like that delivers that? And so I set off on this sort of two-year journey around the world that took me across six continents to visit cutting-edge schools, talk to trailblazing teachers, meet with some of the smartest minds in science and technology. Um, And that journey left me clear about one thing above all, which is that we have a huge amount of unrealized potential. And to realize that we really need to invest in 
people in the students and the teachers and the parents um, who make the education system what it is. Yeah, and I think uh, list, listening to that, that whole idea that it's it can't be um, – it, it was. It, I, I don't suppose – we don't want to be negative about it, but it's, it's gone too far um, to, to just – be a, a quick change and and i suppose the, the 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 premise of what you're trying to what you've seen around the world and 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 kind of bringing like you said the stuff from neuroscience and, and elsewhere into the education sphere um is a is, is a big job um and not not one to be taken lightly but um it's nice to see i suppose that you're trying to and, and you're putting that <laughs> on the agenda aren't you i suppose of um yeah of that well i think you know I think one of the things to understand is that teaching teachers are one of the most highly qualified groups in any profession, um, anywhere. They're also teachers are among the most committed professionals of any profession anywhere. So you have this incredible, creative, ingenious workforce that's passionate about learning, that has a sense of purpose and commitment. And then somehow we take these amazing talented individuals and put them into a system that somehow stops them from using that creativity, from thinking those new ideas, from engaging that passion and rather sort of tries to force everybody through a certain set of shapes, um, reduces learning to something that's more about passing, doing well in exams. Somehow the incentives of the system are go against all of the inclinations that, that the people within the system would otherwise have. And I think that, so we have this great position of strength to be building on the amazing people in the system, but we have to change something to unleash, I think, a bit of the potential of the people that are working in education. And, and, and Alex, and obviously I know you've traveled uh, and everything else. Do you think this is a, a global thing? Or do you think it's because you hear about these stories of people getting it right in Scandi countries and, and everything else? Is it as bad that the UK system is as broken as people make out? Yeah. So I think I learned a few things from, from my journey around the world. One was how connected education systems are to the culture, not only of countries, but also of, of communities. So in Finland, it's a highly progressive society in which the values are much more collective, taxes tax higher, services are more wraparound, there are great after-school activities, kids still walk from home, walk home from school by themselves, age six, in Helsinki, let themselves into their houses, spend a few hours sort of hanging out, entertaining themselves while their parents are out doing something. There's a whole different culture that goes along with it. Similarly, but differently in Shanghai, there's like a real focus on the importance of education and getting ahead. It's a bit more competitive, but it's also collective. You work hard, you do what the teacher tells you. It's a bit less creative, but nonetheless, there's, there's a, a sort of certain way of doing education there that results in them being great at maths, um, you know, years ahead of, of teens in our country according to the PISA tests. And so culture plays a big part, but if you step back from that, there are some things which all the great education systems have in common. First of all, teachers are really highly valued um, as a profession. 
uh, it's relatively difficult to become a teacher. You get good training. Your status is high in society. That's true in Finland, as it is in Shanghai, as it is in Canada. Um, and then secondly, the other thing that you see is a real sense of shared responsibility between teachers, students, parents, and even government officials for the education of children, um, that it's the work of everybody, that everybody needs to know what the purpose of education is. Everybody needs to be actively involved in the education of the young. Whereas I think in the UK, sometimes you get a bit of a, a shifting of responsibility, a bit of a blame game that sometimes emerges. Certainly that, that was partly my experience as a, as a teacher. Now, you can go across the world to discover these things, but of course, they also exist within schools in the UK as well. There are incredible schools across the UK um, that I'm sure you guys know examples as well, places like Reach Academy or School 21 here in London that have developed that culture of shared responsibility, that have elevated the status of teachers, that are asking really thoughtful questions about what education is for, how we do it, who is involved. But in order to do that in the UK, it feels like you have to be going a bit against the grain. It requires a huge effort in an already difficult job to make that kind of, to be that kind of creative professional that you know all teachers, school leaders, hopefully will be in the future. And so I think that you can, yeah, it's, in many countries, the conditions make it slightly easier to be those kinds of professionals and the conditions that exist in the UK right now, I'd say. I think it's it's really interesting that you use that that word professionals as well. I know some of our previous episodes we've interviewed um, uh, quite a few people who talk about this idea about seeing teachers as professionals uh, rather than um, this this idea that they're somehow fulfilling a a factory role of getting people through an exam factory, um, whereas they're a professional that, that make a professional decision that are um, that are trained really really well um, and. There's a huge pressure on a teacher, but sometimes they don't get that same level of professional respect that a, an architect might have or that a, an accountant right. might have. And so you, you've talked there about that that kind of that mindset. And and even it's really interesting, even from a, me, a mainstream media point of view, the, the vilification of teachers most recently has, has really upset lots of us, hasn't it? Because you think it's not that teachers aren't working and don't want to go back in schools. In fact, if you speak to them, most of us really do want to see our students, but we also realise that uh, you've got you've got to be careful, haven't you? And I suppose the whole the whole premise around this idea that teachers being seen as professionals and wanting to, um, uh, to, to 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 work on that, I think that's important. I suppose that's what you're talking about in some of the cultural things elsewhere. Yeah, totally. So, if I could do one thing with my life and career, it would be to elevate the status of teaching in the eyes of the general public. Um, you know, we live in this era in which everything's running out. We're running out of space. We're running out of resources. The only unlimited resource we have is our human intelligence, our human capacity for empathy and for working together. And teachers are the cultivators of that human potential. There is essentially no job more important now or going into the future um, than that of teaching. And I think that, first of all, we have to understand teachers as professionals and we have to sort of respect them in that way and give teachers the support. But I think that might involve 
the profession evolving in interesting ways. So imagine that in the future, all teachers understand the latest neuroscience of learning or the latest psychology and are able to apply that continually in their classrooms. Um, imagine that all teachers are equipped with the latest technology, the latest AI assistant or adaptive learning platform, not so that that can outsource what they're doing, but so it can support what teachers are doing in the classroom. Imagine that teachers are reading the latest research papers on like how to build effective teams in the classroom, like how you can create psychological safety in order to build trust. Imagine that you teachers are also continuing to be experts in their subject matter, perhaps even doing research to continue to deepen their understanding of that subject. Now, I think that is the future of teaching. I think that every teacher would embrace that possibility. At the same time, the system isn't currently set up to enable any of that. Teachers are far too busy currently to spend those hours, you know, doing that extra bit of research or learning about that new tool. And if you want to do that stuff, you have to make a superhuman effort to create the time on top of an incredibly busy week already. And so I think, first of all, we have to understand, like, what are the conditions that we can set so that teachers have more time to indulge their passion as learners to become professionals? How can we reframe the profession? What, that, what might that mean for how we change teacher training. I visited a uh, teacher training uh, school in the US with the Relay Graduate School of Education. And there they imagine training teachers as we understand how to train doctors today. So three years of initial theory meets practice type training where you're learning to master the basics of the craft of teaching and a little bit of the theory. Then a further three years of becoming an expert teacher and they have coaching, you know, coaches who are in the classroom observing your practice, giving you immediate feedback. They break down the profession into little moves that you can do in the classroom. And then a further three years of specialization, you can become a data specialist or a, a group coaching specialist or a subject specialist. And I think that that's one way of getting at it. But also, maybe we could have different roles within teaching that are more explicit. At the moment, a teacher is asked to do all of that stuff on top of a bunch of an admin um, in an environment in which you're given no time to learn. But what if we had teachers who became deep experts in subject areas and that was the thing that they loved doing and were given the freedom to sort of focus on and others who focused a bit more on some of the pastoral work or some of the kind of caring aspects of the profession, others who perhaps were leading extracurricular type activities you know, out in nature or leading sports. And rather than asking people to do all of those things, people could specialise a bit um, into one area or other. Now, of course, it would require a different way of funding education, a different way of structuring the system, um, a different vision. But I think that the benefits you would get from that would make it well worth the investment. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think... It just it just shows how how much kind of creaking and stress the the whole system is under at the moment. And you, you talk about kind of you kind of you, to a certain extent you can do that, but you've you've got everything else that comes along with it. You've got you've still got every, the day job to do as well, and that's how and that's how I think we see the teachers kind of burning out. Um, and it's kind of that circle, isn't it? That the the to prevent burning out, you you chase you chase your passion. Uh, but the more you chase your passion, the more you've still got to do that and 
kind of the day-to-day stuff as well. So it's kind of that never-ending circle at the moment. Um, it would be it'd be it'd be great to jump into the Radio Four series if that's all right. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it, and uh, I I loved the creativity of it as well. Um, like how you in- introduced it and you were talking. Uh, who you know right at the start of the episodes. Who, <laughs> What are you talking to? Because there's like a mumbling voice in the background. It was meant to be a sort of Dragon's Den style panel to which I, uh, right, okay. I did Future of Education. My brother said it sounded like I was talking to Pingu's mum. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like you talked this one through a wall. I was like, <laughs> well, I got also like a sort of like alien, alien school system leaders of the future. Different. There were some yeah. different interpretations of that. No, but it was. It was. I thought thought it was really like creatively done uh and, and really engaging and, and really hit a lot of the um a lot of the 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 key points um and i loved i loved that whole debate and i think we'll probably we it'd be great to get into this debate as well because i know you've you've had a bit of criticism as well from 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 some people because of this debate but the whole you know you, you talk about the the knowing that and yeah. the knowing how um and i know you you on your first episode you 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 interviewed um, Catherine Burblesing, uh and and kind of looked at those schools who who are really focusing and and putting at the forefront of their efforts the knowing that. Um, would do you mind just delving into that? Um, yeah, because I I, I, I want to say delving into that divide, but I think what you're going to say is that there, there shouldn't be a divide. So I'm, mm. I'm a bit hesitant to say that, but uh, yeah, it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. That is what I was going to say, yes. Um, so, you know, I think that Michaela School is an incredible school, and I think that Catherine Burblesing is an incredible head teacher. Um, you know, I think fundamentally it comes down a little bit to values. And in education, you can't impose your values. I think the values are going to be different from one school to the next. They're going to depend on the leadership and the community that you're serving, and who you're working with and what you think um, the outcomes that you want to achieve are. Um, and anybody that pursues their vision for what education is and does it excellently with attention to detail, I can only like incredibly highly respect um, and praise. Um, and I really personally think that it's it's not a divide. It's a really unhelpful divide that we have in our minds and that exists in education debates between, you know, what you might call knowledge and skills, but which in the... In the series we talked about as know that and know how. And you know the distinction is quite simple. Know that is a sort of factual knowledge that you might hold in your head, you know, your times tables, um, all of the capital cities of the world, um, you know, the characters in Shakespeare. There's a bunch of things that you know, um, you know, historical facts. That stuff's really important. You need to know that to be able to navigate the world. You need a foundation of knowledge to be able to be creative. You need domain-specific knowledge to be creative in a particular domain. We know that that's how our brains work. I feel like that's uncontroversial to me. Some of education is going to involve memorizing things and then testing yourself to see whether you know them. Like, I'm absolutely down with that. I think that's important. We have to understand it. You see how effectively that works somewhere like Shanghai. Um, on the other hand, there's this know-how. And I think it's good to use knowledge for both of these because let's understand that know that and know-how are both forms of knowledge. Um, 
Whereas know-how is more, you know, the application of knowledge essentially in situations where you can be using it. So know-how, you might think it's, oh, it's carpentry or it's, you know, knowing how to play football. Um, but actually it's also being able to construct an argument. It's being able to create an essay or write a piece of music, you know, or to play an instrument. These are all forms of know-how. And you can't have know-how without know-that. But also, there's not much point in having know-that if you've got know-how. If you only have know-that, you're going to be great at pub quizzes, amazing at university challenge. But, you know, that's maybe the limits of it. But if you've only got to have know you can't have know-how, or maybe you'd be kind of very restricted to kind of um, know-how that don't involve it. I can't really imagine what that would be. So... Both things are absolutely important. At the same time, I think we need to slightly expand our understanding of what is useful know that knowledge and what is useful know-how knowledge that we have in the world today. So the vision of know that knowledge that informs education now is one that comes from, you know, quite a narrow Western rationalist tradition. And it is, it's the image of men in togas and university libraries and like white beards and things. And that knowledge has, you know, brought us whatever, advances in medicine, it's grown our economy, but it's also threatened our planet, you know, diminished the well-being of people in general, kind of undermined useful beliefs that we have. And so I think we should be at least be asking the question of what would be some other knowledge that would be useful for us to know today if we're to face up to, you know, this need for increasing social cohesion, managing our own well-being, or looking after the planet more. Yeah, I think that's, it's it's really interesting that um, me and Dan had a very, very similar thought um, when we when we were talking about this. It's not a dichotomy. And, and some people have made, like you've said, people have made it a dichotomy when it's not a dichotomy. You need one, or you need both. For the for them to function properly. So if you make it about one thing, and I wonder whether that comes from like the idea of knowing why. We've been we've been so you've talked about knowing that and knowing how, mm. and about this idea about knowing why. Why do we do this? Why? Mm. Wh- I I'm I'm a pragmatist by heart. So sometimes when um, I'm doing something, uh, or, or being asked to do something, usually not when I'm doing something, I ask I get I ask the question why? Why do I need to do this? Um, so I work in a college um, and regularly I get in trouble because I'm the kind of person that goes and says, why am I filling in this form? First of all, why am I filling this form in on paper when it could be electronic? But why am I filling in this form? Why do I need to do this? And people say, well, generally you, you, you go back to it. And I've said this multiple times. Most of the people come back to, well, because this is what we've always done. Um, mm-hmm. And because this is what we've always done, it, this is this is why we why we need it. But I suppose the conversation really has been around uh why, why do we need to learn skills why do we need to learn have knowledge and it's not like i said they're not separate necessarily separate things but it, it's that understanding that if you teach a, ch- a child why they're doing it rather than just what they're doing i suppose we could go into that cheesy idea around uh, teaching a man to fish uh, as opposed to um giving him a fish i suppose the, the giving of a of, of knowledge is giving the fish the teaching them how to fish and is is the is the knowing why they're doing what they're doing and the and the how I'm, mm. I'm i'm rambling but obviously <laughs> where, where i'm going with it well, i think that's fine i think that if you ask yourself the question now if you look at our education system 
not explicitly, but implicitly, the why of what we do in schools, the why is to get a good grade in our exams. Like, that's, nobody would ever say that's the why. If you ask anybody, like, well, why do we have, you know, why does education exist? What purpose does it serve? People would tell you, well, you know, to create um, citizens who are free thinking and can participate or to, you know, help ensure kids have a successful life where they get jobs or to ensure that our community is healthy and happy. But then when you look at actually the actions that people take every day, in general, it feels like you would say the why of education is, well, yeah, to you know, do well in your GCSEs. Like that's what lots of the learning seems to focus on um, in many situations. Now, that's not what's motivating any individual teachers. It's not what's motivating any students. It's not what's motivating any head teachers to be in education. But somehow that's become a bit the logic uh, that's kind of implicitly become the why of the system. Now, somehow we need to dismantle that why so that we can all pursue the whys that we do find important. Um, I think that I think that maybe there were some situations in, in which the, the why is not going to be completely explicit to, to students. Sometimes it's going to be so distant in the future, you might not be able to connect to it. But often, I think it should be. The why is because, you know, whatever why you have, what is education for? Well, if you think that education, if you, if you worry that we face a planet that is suffering for diminished resources and we might be looking at it uh, running out of time, well, the why is because we need a new approach to living um, that's more in harmony with the planet. If you think you care about happiness, then the, your why has got to be, well, you know, what we want to do is create a generation of students who understand who they are, who have a sense of self-efficacy, who know what they love and want to do, who are connected to their passions and can pursue those. If you think that the purpose of education is about getting a great job, even then you'll be asking a different set of questions. Well, what are the skills that we think kids are going to need? What's the knowledge that those kids are going to need when they're older in order to thrive in that setting? And I think whichever why is your why, I think you'd be asking a different set of questions and arriving probably at a slightly different place than we are currently um, with our education system. You used a uh, phrase there. Uh, uh, sorry, Dan, if I just jump in and you, you go, in. I love that phrase. just want to say that you, we need to maybe dismantle the why of what we've got in order to kind of reconstruct a, a different whys and understanding whys. I, I, I just love that. Sorry, Dan. No, I was just, just to kind of add into that, really, that I think it's the reframing, isn't it? It's not the it's not the the knowing what or the knowing how or the knowing why uh, it, one over the other. It's the, well, what do we start with? So I think there's there's that that kind of traditional um, style of education that we that we've mentioned, um, and 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 I, I could be stereotyping here, and probably am um, to a large extent. So sorry to whoever if I've got that wrong, uh, which I will have. Uh, <laughs> it it's not starting with the no the no um, knowing knowing what known that it's starting maybe with the knowing why or the knowing how, and then working back. And and, when, and as we and as we're talking about that, I think so. It's it's not it's not kind of substituting one for the other, but it's it's just it's it's make it's it making sure it's not a linear process, but actually it's the well. Let's let's start off why we need to do this. How do we do it? And then and then um, and it kind of reminds me of a lot of what uh, is it 
is it Simon Sinek what what he talks about mm-hmm. and the, the finding why uh, and and one great example of that is I don't know if you you know the Agora School in the Netherlands. Uh, one of the first things they do when when students enter their school, and we've had Rob Hoban, who's the manager of that school, on, is the first thing they say is, "What do you want? What do you want to? What do you want to create? What do you want to do?" And then they work backwards from that concept. So if a kid wants to, yeah. I think it's an example of say, a, the kid wants to create a skateboard, wants to make his own skateboard in year seven. Um, well, how do we work back from that? Well, what do you, you're going to you're going to need to know a bit of math so you can you can bend the wood in the right way. You're going to need to know a bit of carpentry. You're going you're going there's a whole plethora of skills and knowledge that comes with that how. Um, so I think yeah, I think just adding to that, it's it's maybe the reframing of it that that it's good that's going to make it more purposeful for that for that future world and for students to create that future world. I think that's definitely right. I mean, I as a kid at school, realised that I got to the end of my education, got through university, and I'd never asked the why question. And I thought I'd had a really great education. But when I look back, somebody else had always set the goals for me. Somebody else had always given me the success criteria. And then you arrive in the world and no one's doing that for you anymore. Um, and I thought I had what I thought was a great education. So I think it's so important to ask that why question. And in my travels, I saw places where he, where kids were being asked that question. So, when, you know, in Finland, for example, in the classroom of this teacher, Pekka Peora, he had, he had sort of created a flipped classroom. It was like a pretty basic model in that sense. And he had got his kids working in groups of four. At the start of his lesson, I saw him, he asked these kids a question, then they beamed in answers with their phones, put them on a bar chart. And then, he asked them to turn and talk to each other and explain what answers they'd given. They beamed in their answers again and their answers had shifted. Essentially, the kids were teaching each other in this classroom. And he would give, he gave kids everything they needed for that term, all of their exercise books, all of their questions, all of their tests, all of the answers to the tests. And then he coached them. He coached them on their sense of purpose. He coached them on their ability to work together. He coached them on their resilience, their creativity. So he saw his role as a teacher as being one of helping kids to connect to their sense of purpose, helping the students more than anything to build successful teams in the classroom. That was his first role, he thought, above that of the acquisition of knowledge. He thought the knowledge would come through the motivation. Now, these were high school kids, so they already had some of the tools that they needed to learn things for themselves. But I think the principle of sort of allowing students to engage with their own motivation and sense of purpose still holds true. Yeah, we we interviewed Matt Lees from East Learning a few uh, few months ago, and he the the work that they're trying to do is around student led development, so that they 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 have a that ownership. With lots of pe- lots of teachers talk about the idea around the ownership, um, and if they own their own learning, they own their own progress, they own their own targets. There is a real sense of um, they want to work harder for it. I, I think to myself like. If somebody sets me a target versus me setting my own target or a plan that I've got, there's something there's something very different in your own intrinsic motivation and even that that stuff around self-efficacy that you were talking around as well. So yeah, I think I think that idea of of, of the ownership of their learning is something that I think comes out in what you talk about. And I suppose I suppose that that idea about um, 
we, we we maybe need to coming back to what you talked about at the beginning, which was when you first started out teaching, thinking it would be. I, I, I laugh about that because I've got uh, on my I've got Carpe Diem tattooed on my arm because I thought that's that's what's, what it's going to be like uh, I, when I became an RE teacher. Me and Dan are both RE <laughs> teachers by background. I used to think that I would revolutionise the way that people think about philosophy and deep things, and like they're actually going to care about what happens when we die and how we should treat other people. And actually, most of the kids really didn't care. Uh, and I used to get really upset. Why do you not care about this? This is real passionate stuff. And I just realized when I was 13, I didn't care about it either. Uh, so, so I suppose, yeah, it's, that's that whole that whole idea as a teacher. You've got to, you, you, we've got to change, haven't we? we we've got to change the way we do it so that, um, yeah, to, 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 to make it real for them. Mm. I, I, I think it's, the focus of obviously some of my work in terms of independent learning, the development of, of those skills. And, and, I, and I think we have a, a big issue in terms of teaching compliance, that actually students don't take that ownership, that they're compliant, that they um, will do things when asked and they will comply with the rules and follow the agenda of I will do my homework and I'll hand it in and, and I'll, I'll do this and I'll do this assessment. But actually, are we developing autonomy? Are we developing the, the what we call the wraparound of independent learning skills where they can be creative and they can be critical thinkers and really analyze the whole process of why they're going through that what they're doing it for um and then develop their own i suppose not argument their own element of the debate of of one side rather than the other rather than just being told this is what the way it is and that's what you're going to actually put into an assessment it's then well, why does this happen and and they could probably regurgitate information, and me and Dan were talking about this, about the Battle of Hastings or something like that, but actually could they really form a, a conversation around the, the underlying issues behind it and all the things that have happened since? I don't think we could because of we're developing compliance. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that you know, the more I think about it, the more I think that education has to be a set of a variety of different experiences which are sort of you know i think some settings in which you have direct instruction kids are learning knowledge and maybe there is some compliance but then sort of sitting side by side with other settings where kids are free to set their own goals and pursue their own purpose and become creative like we know creativity fundamentally comprises those two things. To be a kind of creative genius at anything, you need to put in your 10,000 hours of practice and drilling and memorization and get good at the thing. And you also need to have the freedom and space and ability to fail and you know, environment in which you can take risks that allow you to come up with new ideas to associate things. And I think that the whole of education has to be I dance between those two settings um, and sometimes kids are learning about compliance because sometimes in society you do have to comply but at the same time they're also learning that in society you also need to be able to set your own goals you need to understand who you are and what you want to do and so I think that you know that's a lot to get done in a school day and I wonder like what are the sort of education system shifts that we might bring about to, to make that happen. Um, but I think both are so important and we can't lose sight of one or the other. So I don't know if you know this school, High Tech High in California, 
Thank you. What you hear about from High Tech High is the amazing projects, and they are amazing. You know, I saw this one project there. Again, it was sort of high school kids, and this one class had split themselves up into three groups. One group was making biodegradable seed pods. Another group was scripting a documentary. Another group was making drones completely from scratch. And they were going to end this project by going on a hike into the California wilderness to make an aerial survey of the degradation of the environment, replenish missing species with the seed pods, film the whole thing, and put it on YouTube to raise awareness of environmental issues. Like the projects are incredible. At the same time, the kids spend about half of their time in you know, pretty regular looking English math and science classes, learning know that, learning know that content knowledge, which is helping them in their project settings. So I think, you know, mixing, you know, again, Finland, we have this idea of Finland as being this place of like, it's all about play and freedom and creativity. There's quite a lot of time that kids spend in Finnish classrooms doing like fairly traditional looking type lessons, but they do of course have the kind of freedom and play and creativity and this different attitude that suffuses everything as well. So for me, it's both environments matter. And then your ultimate why matters. Is your why, we want kids that will comply, do what they're told, you know, the why of the Shanghai education system, which is great for acquiring knowledge, but as any Shanghai policymaker or parent will tell you, is not preparing those kids to be really successful, creative thinkers, entrepreneurs, collaborators, the kinds of skills which they're recognizing are going to be needed for them, those kids to be successful in the future? Or is your why one of independent thought and collaboration and understanding that knowledge is collective and care and well-being, in which case you'll be telling a different story from day one and thinking, making different decisions about the combination of those two settings? Yeah, and, and I think that's a really interesting concept. When I was I was lucky enough to, to go do some work in, in Finland um, quite a few years ago um, at Hagerhelia University, um, I got to see the, the, the project-based focus that you talked about, the phenomenon model of learning, but also then when you extend it to, to university, that actually there isn't one path that you can kind of pick and that you force down, but actually you'll have an academic route if that is the best suit for you, and it looks at the knowledge and, and the development of that. But also then you look, I was working with, um, different people that were competing in, in, in the Olympics and they were then looking down a massively different strand of, of their education, the vocational side, where they were working with business and they were engaging with business around what do they actually need and, and doing project-type learning in that context. And I think that's one thing that we shouldn't forget, that actually we criticise the education system in the UK, but actually we're comparing ourselves against education systems that are very, very different to our own. Every student is is measured in the same way in the UK regardless of your starting point um, and, and all of the progress and, and anything else, we're actually in, we're being compared then against a very different set of students and a very different set of outcomes for in Finland. Uh, and I saw that massively and it, and, it, and it struck me that I was like, I'm criticising what we're doing, but actually, why are we comparing ourselves to this? We need to be creative and come up with a different system because it is needed. But also, let's not then always think about what they're doing, let's learn from them, magpie the best ideas, but also think about how that applies to us as a as a as a region, as a as a U, in terms of could it be UK, could it be England? What are we actually doing that applies to what we look like as a as a as a country? Um, because we're very different to, to those types of environments. Yeah, I do think that local culture opportunities, challenges 
have to play the biggest part in what a school looks like and what the experience of kids in that school might be. Um, you know, the Finnish school model is set against this backdrop that being a teacher is the most prestigious profession. You know, the country is ranked among the happiest in the world. It's like very redistributive. More money is invested in the kids that are falling behind. Kids don't start school until they're seven years old. Like all of these things are playing into the situation in the classroom. It's not just what's happening in the classroom that's having, having the impact. Likewise, high-tech high schools set up by a certain tech community in California with a set of values. Um, also is a school that is massively oversubscribed in terms of teachers that want to work there. 1,500 applicants for every one new teaching place at high-tech high. So they can sort of pick whoever they want to, to come. So I think here in the UK, we've got to you know, reflect on who we are and what we value. And one of the tricky things I think about the UK is that we're divided as a nation on that question, I think. You know, there's a big strand of, of who we are, which is about competition and the economy and the market and our sense of sort of the importance of our country um, compared to the rest of the world. There's that narrative and it's true and it's like very meaningful for a lot of people. And there's another tradition which is about equality and dissent and radical thought um, and the NHS and, you know, and equality. And I think that one of the difficulties of, of like then figuring out what our education system is, is that it has to you know, be one or the other or account for one or the other um, aspect of that. And there'll be teachers and head teachers and education ministers who've got their own views on that particular question. So there's kind of this continual struggle between the traditional and the futuristic or, or the, you know, the equality and individual getting ahead that I think you can only probably resolve at the local level because we're not going to resolve that nationally. So a school leader and the community around the school needs to understand, again, what their why is, like which is the thing that, that's happening here? Do we care most about you know, supporting the kids that might fall behind, supporting the families that need most help? Do we care most of all about investing all our resources in the you know, kids that are top of the class and are gifted and talented? It is, to some extent, a zero-sum game. You've got to make your investment somewhere. And I think you can only decide that at the, at the relatively local level. And there are schools making brilliant decisions like that and teachers making brilliant decisions about that in the, across England and the wider UK, of course, every day. Yeah, and I, I think as well, I think a lot of what we of of kind of that struggle is is for now, is for right is for right now in terms of twenty twenty. But in the not so distant future, uh, the technology is gonna is gonna change the argument in, in a big way. And I think you you get, kind of get into this in one of your Radio Four episodes about this whole concept of offloading and how kind of ever, ever since ever since humans uh, evolved really we've we've wanted to offload uh, and that, and that's been kind of the 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 instigation behind technology techn technological revolutions even the invention of the wheel let's say because we wanted to 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 offload the 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 um distance of 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 commuting um or or or, or carrying things and and and, it, and it's got us to the point now where we we want to we want to we offload, or we're we're, we're facing like a, kind of a new revolution and offloading our knowledge, and and 
this really struck me way back about 10 years ago uh, when I was doing my, and I've, I've told the story on the podcast before, uh, when I was doing my MA, um, I remember sitting in a lecture one day and the the lecturer, uh, he was looking at Bloom's taxonomy and him saying that the phone will potentially make the, the bottom rung of Bloom's taxonomy, that knowledge rung, um, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get rid of it. We'll, we'll not need it. And it, and it it stuck with me because I still think about it probably on a weekly basis uh, 10 years later because I, I think – and it's that whole concept of offloading, that the fact that uh, we'll not need – and I think um, – was it in your radio show, do you, you, uh, there's, you tell the story of the 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 guy with the book? Was it was it you or someone you were interviewing? Uh, Andy Clark, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'd, if, if, that, if that does progress, and, and you know, we, a, lot of, a lot of people kind of predict the, the chip in the head scenario where everyone will have this chip that's in their in in their head and it's I guess it's just the next it's the it's the iPhone 20 or the iPhone 30 isn't it that that will be in the head um where you can just essentially search the internet in seconds which which is what we're doing now but just using a finger and our eyes to look at the screen uh will that whole uh knowing that actually be re- be relevant will will it will Will it not more be more that we then are forced to focus a lot more on the knowing, the knowing how? Um, yeah, I just, I just, I, lo- I love that whole area of study, that offloading. But it's so, you know, it's it's complicated and it's uncertain. All of that stuff, I would say. So, on the one hand, you know, technology. We've always offloaded stuff onto technology, right? That's been the, the history of learning. So when we invented writing, we were able to take things that we would have stored in our memories and store them somewhere else on a tablet, written into wax, later onto paper. And that was great. We could remember more. We could have a permanent record of something that happened that sort of you know strengthens something, but actually, there's a, Plato writes a story about the invention of writing, in which um, he imagines Socrates. Socrates is talking about an Egyptian king called Thamus, and Thamus is offered the gift of writing by this god called Thoth, and Thamus isn't sure that he wants to accept the gift. He recognizes that writing is going to help his people to remember things forever, you know, without any sense of it possibly being wrong. And that would be great. But on the other hand, he realizes that if he accepts this gift, then the powers of memory of his people will be diminished because they're not gonna be remembering things anymore. So I think with any offloading in technology, we've got to remember that parable, um, that a new technology that supports our um, cognitive work is both a medicine, you know, it helps, but it could also have this being a poison to some extent um, as well. And I think that with our new technologies, exactly the same thing applies. Yes, we can pull up bits of knowledge immediately at our fingertips, but what's the cost of that? Are we losing an ability to think deeply at the same time because we're not like sitting with things for a long time and sort of going through the struggle of getting them into our heads. And at the moment, it's just not clear um, what the outcome of that will be. 
you know, to some extent, I spoke to Daisy Christodoulou for the radio show, and she made the good point that, you know, even if you're Googling something now, you still need all of the contextual knowledge. You still need to know what question to ask Google. You still need to be able to understand the different references. Imagine if Google came up with an answer for you, and you have to then go and look up five other things in that thing. It's going to be kind of unwieldy and difficult to do. But perhaps if you had some kind of amazing iPhone 30 that you worked with from birth, that sort of knew everything about you, that you sort of seamlessly interacted with, like you do with other people, you know, like you do with your partner who sort of, you know, that she remembers that thing and you remember that thing. And like together you sort of have this collective memory of what's going on and it's fairly seamless. Usually mine's Maybe, really bad though. Usually, usually my part <laughs> is really bad at that. <laughs> but, you know, possibly, but it's like, it's very, very speculative. And I think, you know, it's all about the interface. I think at the moment, for me, there's always the human interface would always be our senses. We're always going to have to see or hear or taste or touch or smell the thing for it to get into our for it to get into our brains. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm not sure what this chip in the head will look like, if it will be possible, maybe it will, but I feel like our computer intelligence for me is, you know, it's rules-based. So it's sort of, you know, it relies on data. It's like ones and zeros, it's binary. Whereas I think our human intelligence it's also passive, you know, it has to be programmed. Whereas our intelligence, I think, is active. Our brains are organic. They're continually, infinitely interacting with the environment, with other people, with our tools, continually shifting. Our intelligence is in constant flux. It's always moving, adapting, adjusting based on all of this sensory information that we're taking in. Every interaction we have with another person, everything we see or hear. And I think that it's therefore different um, to a machine kind of intelligence. Now, I think machines can absolutely enhance and augment our intelligence and will probably do so in ways that we can't yet imagine that may include not needing to have quite so much know that knowledge. But it seems to me that we'll probably always need at least some know that knowledge to be able to participate. I called this in the radio show, you know, the, to... to to have the operating system that allows us to access culture. You need to be able to speak, to probably read and write, to um, do a bit of math, have some facts. At the same time, you know, there are theorists that say, no, those things won't be necessary in the future. As long ago as in 1960, the media theorist Marshall McLuhan was saying, the computer age is gonna bring about the end of the age of literature. We won't need to write anymore. We're no longer going to have a linear form of thinking because we'll be able to hear things again. We'll be able to just speak them and remember them. And that will be helped by computers. We don't need to write anything down anymore. And that's going to change how humans think. Now, that hasn't happened yet, um, but maybe it will. You know, there's not like evidence that it will happen. But I think that some of these speculative scenarios are worth thinking through. Yeah, it's really interesting because even that, I think you're almost pushing on the metaphysical there as well of the of the human the human identity and, and 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 all of that kind of thing, and there are there are some neurologists and um, who would say, well, that, that's just data as well. That's just data right. that that it might not be as prominent as the other as 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 the more um, the more obvious bits of data that we we intake. But 
um, yeah, it's gonna, it will be fascinating. And if and especially if if these AI systems are joined up and can learn from each other, and then um, on a on a on a network, that, yeah. that when things are going to get really interesting. And the, and the smartest minds in the world have different opinions about this this very question. Like mine's very very much smarter than mine. So I think it's what you know, Daniel Dennett or Yuval Harari. Um, and then we, I was just going to say that I think that the interesting bit is, you know, what's the infrastructure that could be created by technology that supports learning and intelligence? Imagine a system, an intelligence system that's sort of infinitely connected, that's gathering data on what kids do and don't know over time, that is then feeding that data back to kids, back to teachers, back to parents as well, that's making inferences behind the scenes that sort of supplement the education that's happening, that kind of whole rose luck and Fitbit for the mind thing that makes learning visible to everybody all the time. And that's potentially enhancing learning, but it's not completely replacing, you know, human stuff. I love that that idea around consciousness as well. There's the Dawkins elements around consciousness and and this and this, whether it is just like memes. That are just uh, it's all there. It's, it's all there. So this this is uh, I get all smiley about this because this is my this is my it's, it is deep philosophical. What makes us human? What makes us what makes uh, as learners? What do do we need? Uh, do we need to know this? If if somebody else holds it, so I suppose I, I think about myself in terms of like my uh, my files now. I don't, I, or even a better example is my music. I don't, I used to have a shelf, shelves of uh, CDs here and even had some LPs as well. And now, and then as I, I, I didn't want to get rid of them for ages, even though I was listening to streaming, I was listening to all my music through streaming hours. And I, it was a really tr uh, strange transition to go from getting a CD out and putting it in my car to just plugging in my phone and it just streams it. It was a very, very different way. Of, and it took me a long time to take those CDs to the charity shop uh, because I, I just, I, I wanted to store them. In fact, I've kept some because I think th these will, these will be worth something one day. And that's the only reason why, not because I'll ever use them functionally. And I suppose it's similar with our, with our, with our learning, our understanding. Sometimes that learning will not need to be accessed in that way anymore because it's just going to exist. Um yeah, my, my 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 kids just Google everything. They don't they don't get me wrong. They're learning stuff, but they just they just ask Google. In fact, they don't even type Google. They just talk to it. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. I think Steve Steve would probably say this. What would you say at this point, Steve? Usually, what would be your thing that you would say? Well, I'm just conscious because I always say we could always talk all night, but I'm just conscious of how early it is. So uh, <laughs> yeah, talk all day. So, uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's really insightful. I think it's one of those things that we we talk about often that it, it is divisive and, and it is a bit of a splitter, and it shouldn't be. But I think it's about coming together in terms of the connectivity, learning from from externals um, outside of the UK, but also listening to voices within the UK that are outside of the education sector and how they work together um, in terms of the benefit um, of ed education going forward. But I think it's been a brilliant insight, Alex. Um, um, and, I, and I think people listen to the story will then start to think, actually, um, how do I get in contact with this guy? Obviously, you can follow on on, on, on social media and everything else. Um, but I think it's listening to that and thinking about those learnings um, that have been really insightful today. So thank you very much for coming on.
Thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Thanks, Alex. Cheers, Alex. Cheers, Alex. Okay, guys. Oh, my God.